I just had a, a like Ayurvedic consult session um, with a friend of the podcast, um, Emily Anazelli, who was on season one. Um, and she was leading me in a like grandmother meditation, like envisioning oh. myself as a grandmother. Um, and lots of fruit came from it, but it reminded me of the time we went to a cacao ceremony together and like there was like a sound bath or something. And then we had to partner up and like stare into each other's eyes. And we had never done that before. Um, and then afterwards we were talking about it and we like both saw each other as crones Yeah, and that like, wasn't anything that anyone brought up. And it was just like, so incredible to me that we both gazed into each other's eyes and saw one another in that way. And you had like wrinkles all over you. And at the end, yeah, yeah we like weren't supposed to talk. And at the end you were like, wait, I have to tell you. I saw you as a crone. <laughs> Welcome to The Fifth Element, a podcast for people seeking intimate connection with their innermost self through holistic healing, cosmic consciousness, and radical rebirth. We hope each episode is an opportunity for listeners to join the collective journey towards intuition and integration. In some ways, I feel like our entire podcast has been primed for this very guest, for this very episode, because we've really had many, many episodes that have been steeped in the knowledge that our guest today brings us. We've had our, um, obviously, we've had episodes about radical birthkeeping. I've talked about the Radical Birthkeeper School. We've talked about some of the um, tools that we've learned in the Radical, radical Birthkeeper School, um, like concepts like limiting beliefs. And um, we had like our manifestation episode, just everything has really, oh, all of our all money episodes, mm-hmm. money. Um, and we are very, very, very excited to have our guest today, the Emily Saldea. Um, there's so many titles that you hold, but you're very, very important person in my life. And um, yeah, I'd love for you to give us a little intro and then um, some of what we'll get into today uh, will be around matriarchy and probably touch on midwifery and manifestation as well. So um, yeah, introduce yourself. Hi ladies. Hello. I was giggling in the shower before this about my walkie-talkie name at the festival being Matriarch One <laughs> and how much how much I love that. <laughs> so many of you still refer to me as that. Yeah. Uh, intro, intro. Well, I live in the Blue Ridge Mountains with my family on 65 acres. We're learning how to deal with that blessing. And I started and run Free Birth Society, which is a global platform that is like focused on radicalizing your life as a woman, focused primarily on birthing outside the system. And then we also launched a midwifery school two years ago called the Radical Birthkeeper School, which you just referenced. That is an online program that largely is a leadership school, but it's it's about returning to um, authentic, integrity-based midwifery which is not something abundant on this planet today. And yeah, I'm a birth witness, a pretty busy coach. I'm a mother to a little four-year-old. I'm pregnant with my second child. Yeah, 
lot going on. So much going on. (laughs) I feel like you are like watching you and how you work and impact the world. Like you have such a large, large impact and like so much, um, like I'm just getting the image of like a web, like just like weaving the web and so many women kind of returning back to this, um, this way of, I mean, you said like radicalizing being a woman, um, radicalizing womanhood. And I think like the actual like life-changing effects that you have on people is just amazing. Um, so I want to learn more about how you became or share with our audience how you became this woman um, and maybe starting with how you grew up or if you, you know, what, who your, who your influences were in your life and kind of bring us to um, maybe your first encounters in the world of like radical womanhood. I mean, there's so, there's so much to say. There's so many there's so many angles and I'm thinking about the web reference that you just said, and it's really the web of womanhood that I am consciously a part of spinning, right? So it's not like my web, it is the web that exists between all of us. And I would say my willingness and, and skillfulness to step into a leadership position within that web is kind of how my capacity keeps growing or my impact keeps growing, but it really is. Yeah. It's like the awareness of being connected to the web that is, is all of us, you know, women on, on this planet past and present. Um, yeah. So I grew up, I had a pretty, pretty, pretty complicated childhood. (laughs) Um, and, but, but I will credit, you know, some beautiful things is that my mother, uh, my mother was a very happy mother who the greatest joy was to birth us and nurse us and raise us. And so I grew up with a mother only having positive things to say about motherhood, um, which I just so appreciate because that is not the reference point so many women have. She loved her births. Um, Yeah, just loved all of it. And another thing I'd like to credit her for is her just total lack of vanity I see now how much that, it's a weird way of saying it. I see how not negatively impacted I was by my mother in in that way, right? I didn't grow up with a mother who like wore makeup or talked negatively about her body. Yeah, so those are two pretty big deals I would say as a little girl. And then my father, my father's a complicated guy, but he, one of my big takeaways from my childhood was that he would basically teach me that the rules only applied to me if I let them. And that created a lot of freedom and um, creativity in my way of thinking, which, you know, someone could hear that and be like, oh, what an entitled thing to say. And it, it really wasn't about entitlement. It wasn't about taking or, that wasn't really how it was. It was more like, it was more like, this is yours. However you want to show up in the world, like, let's do it. Let's figure out what that is. And so he was a big supporter of mine to try alternative ways of life. He's actually the one that suggested that I dropped out of high school 
and that I went and learned Kundalini yoga and moved to India. And I wound up doing all of those things. Um, yeah, he's who taught me how to meditate in a Buddhist ashram when I was nine, you know, so he's who I first did mushrooms with when I was 16. Um, and really psychedelics are another thing I would have to reference in my, like in the, in the foundation of my teenage years and, and in my twenties, um, as being, yeah, one of the most helpful ways to visit expanded states of consciousness, you know, and learn how to then level up into those states, um, when not, when not in them. Um, yeah. And then moving into my twenties, you know, I was, I was, I don't know how far you want me to go into the birth work, but I was figuring out birth work from a really young age. So I did drop out at 16 and moved to LA and started doing volunteer stuff pretty quickly. And just, I just started my life fast. You know, I just hated school so much and hated being told what to do, hated living at home. Uh, I just wanted to be free. And so my boyfriend and I left, we were working at Panera Bread and we had $2,000 saved which at 16, I remember saying to my parents when we told them that we were withdrawing from school, I was like, what can't you do with $2,000? <laughs> That's amazing, Emily. That's literally how you still are. I know, exactly. I was just going to say that. That's totally just how I am. Like what can't be done, you know? And, <laughs> and that is kind of a, a, a foundational element of this, right? That I've played with my thinking a lot and I, I use my brain, you know, as the playground that it is. And so that takes a lot of skill and a lot of willingness. And it's taken a lot of years to figure out, you know, how to do it at the way I'm doing it now. Um, but the results of it is a, a tremendous amount of like mental freedom and, and awareness that I'm co-creating my reality, which also brings a lot of freedom. And then the sense of just kind of not taking things all that seriously. Um, and there's, you know, more ingredients, but yeah, anyway, so in my twenties, uh, one of the standout pieces is that my dad sent me one of Byron Katie's books, uh, a thousand names for joy, which is one of the most delightful books I've ever read. And that was when I was 19, 20, and then I met my mentor who becomes my life mentor when I was maybe 24, who taught me the tools, the conscious leadership tools. And yeah, so kind of that's all happening. And I'm, oh, I joined the circus. I'm a circus performer. I'm touring the world. <laughs> I'm, yeah, I'm just like living, you know, and thriving. <laughs> and just my twenties were so great. They were just so wonderful. And I had this pack of big sisters that initiated me into like the festival world and the performing world. And we were circling together all the time and I'm attending births and I'm performing and, you know, all over the world really. And, um, it was just wonderful. It was a super expansive, just playful, creative time. Yeah. Yeah. There's so much, right? Like how do you encapsulate yeah. how you become who you are? But the work, you know, the, the birth work, as I hone in on throughout my twenties, I've been, I had been attending birth since I was 17 and I had seen somewhat normal births at home. And then when I saw the first hospital birth, 
where a girlfriend of mine just got annihilated in what I would come to understand is the classic induction to C-section path, but it was my first time experiencing or witnessing that, that frequency of torture. That was really when stuff started to shift a lot and a lot of clarity started to, um, started to come in my birth work. I mean, a lot of clarity didn't come till later, but that was when I honed in on like, this is what I'm doing. And admittedly in my twenties, I still believed in reform. And so I was thinking I was going to change the system from the inside, started a nonprofit. Um, I kind of did all of that. And I'll just like quickly go through that and say, by the end of my twenties, having witnessed hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of births, most of them involving abuse and violence and humiliation and torture and trauma. Um, I was able to basically figure out the unanswered problem of my twenties, which was how do I do birth work without this part? How do I attend births without the medical providers that are ruining everything? Yeah, it was very confusing because I knew I was on the path of midwifery, but all the paths laid out were all medical midwifery, which I have huge issue with and always have. And so that was kind of, that was a dark time in my late twenties, figuring out what the hell was going on because no one that I knew in my life was discussing the experience of a doula the negative experience of a doula and the complicated dynamic of making money under ultimately unethical pretenses that you're somehow going to protect a woman in an abusive system. And, you know, for some time I felt a little bit of shame around how long it took me to figure it out, but that's also so much of what I'm so proud of now with the Radical Birthkeeper School and that we are helping so many women expedite that learning curve. So it's kind of a way that I can discharge some of my, oh, that took me a really long time, but I didn't have anybody guiding me through right. this. And really I was quite gaslit when I would bring it up in the birth world. Um, so I definitely give myself grace for that because I didn't have anyone affirming the horror that I was seeing and experiencing. Yeah. I feel like there was one other angle beyond the birth work that was also happening. Well, maybe it'll come to me. What were, what was like keeping you connected to the birth work as you were figuring out? Well, did you have this vision at all? Like, did you, okay. You're just like, as you mm -hmm. go, you're just figuring it out all the time. Well, you know, it changes. When I was younger, I thought being a doula in the path to midwifery was the deal, which in some ways, I mean, that is still what I did, but yeah, it, it wound up taking a lot of soul searching and a lot of trailblazing to find the path that was actually ethical. Um, but I was going to, I remember the other piece I was going to add that, that I have to mention around feminism in my 20s, because it's also my early 20s that I learn about global female oppression. And I read Half the Sky and I start to get involved in anti-sex trafficking efforts. And I begin to learn 
um, a lot about what women and girls face around the world. And that has massively influenced everything else. It, it influences how I live my life. It influences the marriage I've chosen, the lifestyle I've cho chosen, how I parent my daughter, my willingness to make money, um, what I'm doing now, like all of it gets tied into um, a real pain point, you know, of, of female oppression around the world and wanting to, and being committed to being a part of the resolution. Yeah. To women and girls liberation. Mm -hmm. So would you say that was kind of the driving force behind, or like the motivation behind wanting to keep doing this work? I feel like people who kind of live alternative quote unquote lives or like things that aren't socially um, predicted or expected are just like branded as being kind of intentionally alternative or just like trying to be different. But it seems like there were much deeper like core motivations for you in all the things that you were doing, stepping outside of these social norms. Totally. I mean, the birth, the birth work was never, it never felt like an option. Like obviously everything is, but it really, it found me so young and has always, it's just every year it becomes more clear what a gooey center, like a, like a Holy grail, the work of authentic birth work, you know, is. So, you know, there were these beautiful markers along the way, like doing infant massage for parents who had, who had infants in hospice and had open heart surgery and, um, just seeing what it was like to support families with, yeah, babies that were on their way out or were in massive trauma recovery mode. Um, that was kind of the first glance into what it looked like to support families. And it was shocking how impactful my love could be. Like it was so easy. I was so young. I was 16, 17 in these environments and it just felt so obvious and so effortless. And then that moves into my friends inviting me to births and yeah, it's like the Holy grail, you know, it's, it's so epic. And, and there was a, an intellectual part of it too, that I had had, you know, experiences where there's a particular story in my high school where a friend of mine had been raped and, um, that was kind of my first exposure to male violence. And it was, it happened right before we left high school. And I remember staying up one night thinking about her and about what little I knew of the world at 16 and just being like, this doesn't make sense. Like, how does this happen? How does a boy or a man become like that? And I remember laying in bed and in my, you know, it's a bit oversimplified in, in my 16 year old brain, but I just remember doing this rotation all night being like, okay, but if a mother and a baby are healthy, that boy, should that baby be a boy, could not go on and rape women. Like I remember making up this formula, like it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. And so then, okay. So if the formula is we need healthy mother, baby, how does that happen? And if I'm going to pick an, an insertion point of activism along that like golden thread, where do I, where makes the most sense and birth 
pregnancy and birth, obviously it's a continuum. Like there is no point where it ends. There is no point where it begins, but pregnancy and birth seemed just the most obvious for high impact. Mm -hmm. So it was kind of both, like there was thinking around it. And then it was also, there was no other place for me to be. It was so, and the other thing we know worth mentioning is it was easy in a good way, not in a lazy way. I worked my ass off, but saying yes to that path and that path saying yes to me, it was so easy. I was so busy. Everyone hired me. Like it just was so easy to say yes to that. It, it, it wasn't hard. What was hard was watching women be hurt and having their births taken from them. And like I said, it took me kind of a while to figure out who I was and who I wasn't in that space. And really, the, I guess the last thing I'll say about that is what I got to was realizing I tried to seek refuge in home birth, medical midwifery, and that was a shit show. And so realizing when I wanted to call in my own child, having this kind of realization in LA that no one I knew would ever be invited to my birth, like no midwife in LA that I had had witnessed birth with, I would ever have be near me. So then I was like, oh shit, what does that mean? First of all, why am I going to birth with providers that I wouldn't be around? How is that ethical? And what does this mean for my work? And yeah, that was kind of the the big pivot in my life was realizing I was ready for my own child and was not going to be exposing my journey to, yeah, anyone in the system. Yeah. Um, the, I, I've been thinking a lot about the idea of like embodying this like pain point that you're talking about and kind of like dedicating your life to it. And when you were saying, you know, learning about global female oppression for you was, um, the start of that. And I have a similar journey that's been more on my mind as I've been in Phoenix, which is where I am right now. And, um, my like exposure to outside of just my own little bubble and experience of womanhood started when I was doing my year of service with the moms in Phoenix. And I've noticed that it's been five years since then. And I tried since that sort of like breaking open exposure moment to like pick what type of activism I was going to do to like combat that and sort of like solidify what I had learned. And until I had kind of like surrendered to, or like given in to just like, no, I have to change my entire life. It's not just like, oh, I'm going to like volunteer as a doula, or I'm going to take this teaching job. Nothing felt right. Like I would come back to Phoenix every couple months and like, I could feel in my body that I still felt like, oh my gosh, it's, this is not right. Like I'm back here and I'm back in these experiences and I'm still not like satisfied. And now that I feel like I've had like kind of a total coming into who I actually feel like I am because of that experience. Um, It's easy and it's not this like trying to almost from a place of guilt and like, oh my gosh, there's so much that I've learned and other women have it so much worse. So how am I going to like repent for what I have or, you know, that sort of like reformist attitude Mm -hmm. instead of 
being like, you know, I can really change my life and like dedicate myself to women and have it just be easy in that way, which obviously I've seen you do, which takes us to, if you want to talk more about like how you, you took that experience of learning about global female oppression and witnessing all of these horrible, yeah, yeah, horrible births and everything and like bringing it into you, how you live your life. Yeah, it's the, the clearest way to name the shift is really to, the best way I could describe it is through the language of the tools which I don't want to go, you know, I'm just going to kind of say it and hopefully it'll make sense for people who aren't familiar with the language, but around the time that I ended birth work in the system, started attending outside the system, then got pregnant and left LA, like that period of time, um, I changed my whole consciousness to be from hero on the drama triangle. So providing temporary relief, saving others, seeing other women as victims, all of that, reform, all of that. Uh, and like what you just mentioned, what that was largely based in for 10 plus years was I was really just trying to convince women to not go be abused, which is crazy. And, you know, it doesn't work. It's unsustainable. And I had enough years to look at what I, who I was in that world to be like, mm, not really working. It's not really creating sustainable change. And so if I am interested in taking hundred percent responsibility, um, I got really interested in this possibility of activism above the line, meaning in a co-creative consciousness. Um, and I wanted to see if I could live my life for something instead of against something. And that's probably the most simple way of explaining it. I was against the system in my 20s while working within it and with it, which really is, that's insanity, but that's what a lot of people do. And with the birth of Free Birth Society and my own mothering choices and then everything that shifts after that in the last five years, I'm not saying that I don't also still totally villainize the system. And, and of course I do. Um, but, but really my whole consciousness has shifted into living for the liberation of women and girls, instead of trying to prevent something, instead of working against oppression, instead of working against the system. And maybe it's mostly like a internal, yeah, energetic shift, but as soon as I started to tune into that within myself and get really curious and wonder about what that would be like and, and feel that difference in my own body and use the tools that I had already been working with on a personal level into this part of my life, everything shifted. I mean, everything goes on to change quite radically and beautifully from, yeah, changing like, like what am I actually calling in into the world. So, you know, for people who are really committed to seeing racism, they're going to see it everywhere, right? For people who are going to work against racism, they would require the evidence of it, right? Which is really trippy to think about. So same thing with patriarchal misogyny, right? If I'm going to work against oppression, 
then I need to see it in order to be um, valuable. And so I just got really curious around what it would be like to just work for something. Yeah, I guess that's kind of the most simple way to put it. Like I said earlier around being the resolution. And so that's when I got really focused on my own community, my own family, my own insides, my own brain, and wanted to see what would happen if I kind of got that right. Yeah, which also is a pretty personal spiritual journey. Like how much can I love myself? How much can I accept myself? How much grace can I have for myself? How much can I center my own life in my own life? You know, what stuff do I need to shed that is um, stuff that I'm trying to not see in the world? right? So like hyper self-criticism, people pleasing, uh, living from obligation. There's a lot of stuff that I confronted and was like, I am my activism. So if I want to see women surpassing these limits, I'm, I need to clean up my backyard, you know? And so I did not saying that there's nothing left. There's always (laughs) messes to clean up for sure. Uh, yeah, but that's really where it all began was being like, what would it, what would it be like? And what kind of business would I create? And what would my life look like if I just created the thing I wanted to see in the world? Wow. And what a shift for your nervous system too, to be surrounded by the things that you love and celebrate as opposed to Mm -hmm. the things that you resent most all Mm -hmm. the time. It's also like a shift from scarcity to abundance, right? And it was a big shift for my nervous system. I thought I was a fighter. And I, like, of course I could be if I needed to be, but I have expanded into so much more other parts of me now that I don't need to be this feisty fighter like I was. I mean, it's still in me, of course, but yeah, there's a lot more softness and patient patience and maturity and awareness and yeah it has really shifted my nervous system so you talked about centering yourself and um this idea of becoming your own activism which is just such a beautiful image of how i view you and your work and um this idea of matriarchy, which I'd love for you to talk about, um, kind of being the, the antidote to patriarchy, but not the mirror image that, that people think of it as, you know, women being at the top of this hierarchy. Um, yeah. So when, when did matriarchy come into your consciousness and bring us to how you have structured your life now? Because it's so different than like any other women that I know, except women that I know through you who probably have learned from you. (laughs) Yeah. So, I mean, the, the, the global female oppression education, uh, that I put myself through was, it was definitely the start of seeing the biggest cost of patriarchy, right? Because it's like the worst situations. Um, but then, you know, in the book, which I really recommend everyone read called Half the Sky, one of the really beautiful parts that they do in that book is it's not just a horribly depressing book. They follow success stories where when girls or women get a chance. 
And so that's not matriarchal. It's still very much within a patriarchal structure. But that was when I first started to learn the truth that when women and girls get chances, how they will come back and elevate their whole village. That really struck me. And that we don't see the same outcomes when boys and men get chances. So that was kind of the first like, whoa, this is a very, very important thing to know about, right? So um, one interesting thing, and, and Cheryl Wudan is, is the co-author of that book. She has a TED talk that describes this as well. Um, but she tracks all these different household incomes that live below the poverty line. Um, I believe the ones that I'm about to reference were from India, I think under $2 a day. So they track where when a male runs the income, where the money's going on the pie chart on average versus when the female of the household runs the money. And I will never forget that learning. Um, and the, the synopsis basically is that the male run household income would be uh, often over half for alcohol, tobacco, and sex work, prostitution, um, that there would usually only be one child in school, if at all. The households almost always had, no, they did always have less utilities, if any, whereas when the females ran the same amount of money, the exact same amount of money in the same area, all the kids are in school, they have power and water, uh, they give their husband a little stipend for alcohol, drugs, and sex, and the rest of it is going back into the household. And so she makes this case again and again and again, and that's largely what the, what the book is, is that when women and girls are given a chance, the whole world is elevated. So that's what caught my eye. And I don't particularly remember specifically when my matriarchal like, research started, um, it just kind of was an obvious interest of mine from that early 20s learning that like, oh, what if we trusted women? What if women led? That's an interesting idea that seems to be proven again and again as the healthiest option for both the planet and the humans. And so, yeah, basically moving into my family dynamic, um, like I said, I mean, I really just was looking at how do I want to live and what does a matriarchal household look like? Is that even possible? Yeah, I should reference the, the mirror image thing that you said, and it's just a great misunderstanding because no one knows anything about any of this, right? So someone who doesn't know anything would easily make the assumption that matriarchy <laughs> I mean, it's kind of stupid, honestly, but that matriarchy would somehow look the same as patriarchy, but in reverse. So we'd be raping all the dudes and we'd be molesting all the kids and we would be, you know, like it yeah. doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Um, but that is what you hear the, the uh, like male right activists, you know, say. And so patriarchy is defined by top down domination and control. And matriarchy is non-hierarchical. So it really is a lot to chew on, actually, to even just chew on that concept. Non-hierarchical leadership, family structures, and community dynamics. Wow, that's, mm -hmm. it still very much takes me, I mean, it's like one of the things I just like think on because it is so foreign 
to my brain, what that looks like. And I, you know, I'm doing my best to figure out how to practice that, um, within a very programmed brainwashed patriarchal mind. Right. So yeah, it is something I find interesting too. I just want to mention is from, because we don't, because we aren't defining it clearly, like, because everyone has this idea that it's a mirror image hierarchical structure, we also are looking for that. And so it's like, oh, there were no matriarchies because we're looking for women at the top instead of communities where it's this non-hierarchical. Well, also the research has been heavily hidden. You know, there are matriarchal villages, communities, peoples, lands, past and present today, uh, no one seems to be that interested in, you know, publishing much about that, Right. but it definitely exists and has always exists. And in fact, it, it's known now as the original, um, for a long period of time, the original ways of life, which, you know, the more you learn about it, duh, it makes a lot of sense. So yeah, it is, it, a lot of this comes down to just the, the basic, like what, what would it look like to trust women? And therefore, what would it look like to trust me? Like myself, this is my inner dialogue. <laughs> and so what, yeah, what does that look like? If I want to do birth work in a non-hierarchical way, in an integrity-based way. Okay. So then if I'm going to show up in this equal, you know, equal whole way, then what, what do I need to get right about myself? And yeah, so Basically within my family, I guess one thing worth mentioning that was a big shift for us was, I mean, I've never had a problem having what I want. Let me, I guess I start with saying that it's, I've always been pretty darn willing to have what I want. Now, what I want keeps like expanding and showing itself to me, but I knew since I was 12 that I would birth my first child on Maui where my father lives. And yeah, I knew that. And so knowing that I wanted that, we arranged our lives to make that happen, which, you know, was a lot of moving parts. And it meant we left LA. I didn't want to do any birth work. I wanted to spend my pregnancy uh, focused on myself and not watching abuse. And I needed to really re-regulate myself after all of that. And so my husband got a job out in the woods in Northern California. And I just slept and walked with the animals in the woods and talked to almost no one. I had a really introverted pregnancy, which is not my personality at all. And yeah, it was exactly what I wanted and needed. And then we go to Hawaii. I birthed there. I do postpartum there. And it was perfect and super integrative. And then my husband gets a job in Colorado. Uh, yeah, so that was kind of when everything shifted because then we went from being a pack because we had savings that we moved to Hawaii with. So my partner didn't have to do anything other than serve me, you know, and that's, that's right where we like them. And so (laughs) for real though, which also he likes it to be clear, uh, it was just amazing. And so we got to experience that for about five months. And then when we go to Colorado, we went through a really stressful period because the first job he got, he lost and it was really stressful. We were out of money. 
I wasn't really together enough yet to do much working. And it was just a very, very, very stressful time. So he then gets this other big job and he's gone 40, sometimes 50, sometimes 60 hours a week, you know, waking up at five on his feet all day, coming home, uh, so tired. And I have been with the baby all day and also trying to, you know, do my business. And it was horrible. Yeah, it was horrible and horrible for us. Maybe isn't that even that bad. Like we still had a nice life and we were, we were well together. It wasn't like we were fighting or like it was nasty, but it was so disjointed Mm -hmm. and to have him on a different flow than his tribe felt so weird for, for all three of us, you know? So he'd come home and be on a totally different, like, I just need to chill. I'm exhausted. And I'm like, here's the baby, make some dinner. I've been with the baby all day. I'm working you know, it was horrible. And there's obviously only so much you can do with a kiddo. So then I would hand off the baby and then go downstairs and lock myself up to get some of my work done. It just made no sense at all. Were you going to say something? I was just going to say most women, this is what they accept as normal. And yeah. And ignoring that feeling that's like, there has to be something better than this mm-hmm. um, exactly. and just kind of pushing it down, pushing it down, being like, okay, exactly. I guess this is motherhood. I mean, this is right. being a woman. Yay. Right. What we, what I was going through was very typical for a Western family. And it was awful. Yeah. <laughs> it made no sense. And yeah. And she was too little to like bring in a nanny. Like I was still nursing all the time and it, it was awful. So yeah, basically pretty, we did that for about a year and a half and we were very clear that we didn't like it and we didn't know what else to do. And I've worked with this mantra since I was young, uh, like in high school, I think I started doing it. Um, and it's just a question I'll ask myself and it's, does this feel good? And it has been a North star for me since I was really young. I used to have a leather bracelet that said it on it. Does this feel good? And yeah. So I would ask myself all the time, does this feel good? Like, no. Okay. So we know this doesn't feel good. So then this isn't it. This is not it. And there's no way in hell I'm having another kid because I am not willing to be stressed. I'm not willing to hate motherhood. I'm not willing to have a shitty marriage. And so here we are. I'm not willing to have the life that we're like heading into. So what do I do? Yeah. So we had a real come to Jesus couple of months of being like, I have no idea what we should do, but I know that what we're doing is a hard no. And yeah, thankfully we have enough tools that we were like, well, we need to shift into wonder questions. We need to dream. We need to, you know, another thing I'm, I'm quick to do, and it has served me so well in my life is to just ask myself, or I do it with my husband a lot of just like, well, what's the biggest dream? I remember one time coming up the stairs from my office and he was in the kitchen with the kiddo and it was like a little stressy. It didn't feel so good. And I came up the stairs and I said, all right, all right. <laughs> hold on. We need like a clean slate. And can we just get clear with no limitations, what the best possible life for us to have would be because we got sucked up into it. You know, our rent was a lot. We were in a city, 
oh, like everything I hate, but we were just like trying to make it work, you know? And yeah. So, I mean, I, if you had told me then that three years later, this would be my life. I mean, I guess I did figure that out and, and make that happen, but <laughs> I would have been surprised. So yeah, that was Colorado was a big turning point for us. So I came up to him and said, we just need a clean slate, best case, best case life. Like, what is it? And we got, so we started to dream again. And that was what we had stopped doing for a while, just caught up in the hustle, paying bills, surviving, you know? And so, yeah, we started to dream and we would go on walks and we would just dream. And pretty quickly, it was obvious what our dream was. And our dream was for me to be a hundred percent engaged and devoted in my work and for him to be home. Like it wasn't a complicated dream. That was really it. Of course, we wanted to own some land at some point, but we had shitty credit and didn't see where that was going to be possible anytime soon. Um, so we were like, okay, brass tacks, you need to quit your job. And that was scary. I was not making a lot of money yet at all. And that's kind of why I'm sharing this whole story is to get to this one point, which is that we were clear on our no. We didn't really know what it would look like, but we chose a life before we had it, which is crazy. You know, like that's so scary and that's so weird and wild. And like, who does that? But I knew I wasn't going to thrive in the situation I was in. And like I said, I was unwilling to like dislike motherhood. That's crazy. I had waited my whole life to be a mom. You know, I had been so intentional about who I was with and what partnership I chose. And it, it was becoming a mother was a very, very, very core lighthouse in my life, my whole life since I was a little kid. And so then to be living how I was, not really digging it. It was the dynamic, of course, it wasn't my child. So cho choosing the life before we had it, huge leap of faith. He quit his job. We were terrified and it was amazing. And it, it opened up everything for us, you know, and it happened to, he quit his job like a month before COVID. And as you know, M, I am completely disinterested in capitulating to that circus. And so as soon as COVID hit, we got out of Denver. He, he had already quit. We left Denver. We hid in a little mountain town in the Rocky Mountains, thinking we were going to wait it out. And I launched the school and it just all worked out. I had already had, already had the membership and I knew that Free Birth Society had enough momentum that if I had the time to, you know, I, I really did have total confidence. It was not the first company I had started. Um, really anything I've done in my life that I've put my full self in has been successful, mm -hmm. you know, and I don't think I'm anything special. I think I'm just willing to do hard work and, and I'm willing to have success. And yeah. And yet that is what makes you really special. Right. And, and I think that it's so interesting to, you know, just be hearing women's voices in my head during this that are like, oh, I wish I could do that. Or, you know, that sounds so brave, you know, things that women would say. And it really is this willingness to have it that I think 
seriously holds so many women back from living in like from thriving and like living in their um fullest potential of like their dream life and so that most 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 people are committed whether they're aware of it or not to victim consciousness living in a reactive state and it to me things are just happening to me and I'm reacting to it and when you know as you know what the tools have given me is um, spending time out of that consciousness and in a through me or by me or as me consciousness where I am aware that my life force is co-creating my reality you know it's like uh, it's like kind of said so frequently that it can kind of be deafening but it's completely true and yes it's weaponized and yes people do it wrong and most people don't understand it but for me in my life I feel like I do understand it and I have committed to seeing what I can do in those states of consciousness. And it's been incredibly fruitful. So the last thing I'll add about the pacing of our family is, so when he quit and we moved and I launched the school, we already had the complete guide out. My coaching got a lot more popular and I was able to really put my all into it. And my kiddo was now a toddler, not a baby. Um, and I had Johnny home. And so everything changed in my capacity of what I could do and what I wanted to do. And then moving here to this beautiful land was taking it up a whole nother degree. So it was also a big jump and we had never owned anything. We had always been renters and like city people. And, um, yeah, this was a huge leap and, And it was everything that I needed for the next step of my vision, right? So, I I mean, I've always had big visions Um, and knowing that I wanted a place to call home for a women's festival, you know, also my husband is very passionate about permaculture and homesteading. And so we needed to get on land for him to really steward land in a way that like, I think is cool, but I don't really have time for it because I'm doing my stuff, you know? Um, yeah. And I wanted to be in a position where as my resources grew, I was, uh, sharing them for lack of a better word that I was creating jobs and creating, you know, rentals for my friends to come live. And, um, you know, since then I've been able to hire employees, obviously you're one of them. Um, yeah, build the festival of my dreams and have this beautiful land. And all of these families are flocking here and, um, you know, more and more studying matriarchal communities, really letting that influence how I'm setting a lot of this up. So the pacing of my family is very much based around me and my needs. But again, this can be hard for people to understand because it's not in a hierarchical way. It's not like my husband is below me serving me at all. And it's not like he is sacrificing his needs in order to do it, but it's really hard for women to get that because we all saw our moms sacrifice themselves for the most part. Yeah. So it's really based around how to support me best, how to meet my needs. Um, Obviously my daughter is an extension of that, Um, but I really am at the center and that's kind of, it's still a little awkward for me to talk about, um, because I, I want to do it justice and I want to explain it well. Um, and we really are talking about a very different paradigm than what probably most people have seen. Um, yeah, I don't know. I could keep well, talking. Yeah, it. well, it comes back to the 
uh, idea in Half the Sky, which I know I, I, I think I talked about it on your podcast, but not this podcast, but I also read that when I was like 11 or 12 and was completely radicalized by that book and the, the structure of the money and, and the villages and everything. Um, but it really comes back to the core sort of biological reality that when a mother's needs right. are centered, everyone else's needs are met. And so the more disconnected we become from those biological realities, obviously, as we are, so many of us are now, um, the crazier and crazier that dynamic sounds because we've lost all idea, uh, like all, um, we've lost touch of what mothers even mean and like what that <laughs> But that connection yeah. really does. So it, it, I can imagine it's very hard to talk about because women or people probably just um, assume like, okay, self-centered, hierarchical, mm -hmm. whatever. Like, what does centering my needs even mean? You know, right. Like most women what even are my needs? Yeah. Right. And so a regulated, well-supported mother creates a contented, regulated child. And you yes. see that in my child, yeah. you know? And you see it in our family dynamic, you know, you, you, like we have a very tight, regulated, healthy family that did not just like happen, you know, it was all quite purposeful and required a lot of changing, a lot of shifts than what we were taught to do. Yeah. Yeah. And my husband, you know, came into this relationship like more or less just like a normal dude. You know, he wasn't like, let's have a matriarchal household. You know, it wasn't really like that. He was super open um, and, and was very interested in my uh, anti-sex trafficking work and supportive of that. Um, yeah, but he was just like a dude that was growing weed and smoking weed and going out with his buddies and just like, you know, being a guy. And yeah, it just, we just talked about it a lot. And he was super interested in, I mean, it, it wasn't like it took any convincing. It was clear from the beginning that I was the leader in our family and that I had the vision. And I, I wish I saw more women acknowledge that within themselves, because I do think women naturally are the leaders of their pack, of um, but not knowing it creates a lot of weirdness in families and a, a lot of games and a lot of drama really. And I know I'm making a generalization and some families seem to still work well patriarchally. Okay, I wouldn't say it's sustainable. That's a great point. Well, yeah, go ahead, Keely. Um, I guess like what advice do you have for women who are just like so like you said this is a huge paradigm shift but like the discomfort of even being centered or you know feeling taken care of or you know everyone talks about self-care and stuff but I just like I know women who are like my wedding day was the worst day of my life because all the attention was on me as I walked down the aisle well you know like how do you get out of that just like prioritizing yourself and your needs well the thing is if you hate yourself you're not going to have a matriarchal household. You know, if you, if you are so, are, if you're in so deep in your own toxic relationship with yourself that 
that you couldn't handle your wedding day because people were there to support you like that. You have a lot of work ahead of you. Right. You know? And so, I mean, kind of like I said at the beginning, like my household dynamic is an expression of my own self-worth and my own self-respect and my own self-love. And I was, you know, lucky to not have a traumatizing childhood. So I know I had like building blocks already set up for me that lots of women, unfortunately do not have. Um, but yeah, I would say my own healing, my own wholeness and my own, uh, like access to my self-worth has created a breeding ground of possibility, right? So if someone doesn't have that yet, that's where they start. Mm-hmm. And that could mean learning the tools, working with me, probably dumping your shitty boyfriend, most likely, you know, I mean, that's the other piece. Like if you're with a misogynist, good luck. None of this is going to happen. Right. And, and unfortunately a lot of women are, and you know, they don't even realize it until they're like, I want a birth at home. And their husband's like, why don't we just go to a birth center? And she's like, okay. You know, I can't even touch that. I know. I touch that. <laughs> you know, but that's a lot of people. So, you know, I, I mean, small, you know, I'm thinking of small things in my, in my relationship that I used to reject. You know, I used to be the classic, like, I'm a boss babe during the day, but I want you to be a boss in the bedroom, you know, like all that like shit that women have in, in their conditioning. And I really addressed that in the beginning of my relationship and was like, that's so interesting that I'm playing out this thing that I see women play out. Um, you know, the like fantasy of like wanting to be taken because I'm like such a, um, uh, like a decision maker by day. And I was like, I really thought on that for a couple of years and was like, I wonder if that's just a narrative that's been told to me. And I, I wonder what it would look like if I took leadership here too. And it really changed. It really increased the health of our relationship because I was setting him up for a lot of games by playing out this like supposedly desired dynamic that wasn't actually our dynamic at all. Our dynamic is that I'm the leader. And that, that doesn't mean I'm initiating every sexual interaction, but it might mean that I am um, vocalizing that that might be what I want. You know, like I've accepted our dynamic and all of the fruits of it and the parts of it that have felt annoying. I've really done, yeah, the work on to not resist, I guess you could say. There's so much to say about this, but um you know, yeah, I, I see where a lot of women get into this, like, well, I want to be the leader, but he, he also needs to lead in these exact ways. It's like, well, that's probably not how it's going to go. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but it feels really good. It's obviously a work in progress. Um, and it has meant contending with my own, any areas of my own brokenness or self-sabotage and being willing to have it is huge. Uh, But I think one thing that helps me that I would invite other women to try on as well is this feels a lot bigger than me. Like I am here and this is my life, of course, but I feel very connected to a vision and a purpose and, you know, through my own lineage and through this time on the planet um, and through what I want to see in the world. And so with that clarity, it helps me not like take my own shit so seriously, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I find that actually some of the most insecure women, uh, that I know 
have no sense of service. And, and service has helped me actually be more secure in what I have to offer and what I'm doing here. Mm-hmm. And I think about how much more manageable that is to just like worry about yourself and your own integration and your own healing and all the, just falling in love with yourself. Cause I, you know, can hear people like listening to your story or seeing your life and being like, how do you find a husband like that? It's like, you're saying like, no, he's just a normal guy. And I figured out who I was and stood in my integrity and we dreamed together and this is the life we built. And the whole world responds and adapts when you are standing in your integrity and in your strength and in your truth. And that's a really beautiful thing, but it also just makes it seem so much more attainable when it's just like, no, just worry about your own shit. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. We, we brought this up on an episode recently around like, instead of, instead of seeing women and feeling jealous of them, you know, see women and, and know that they're showing you what's possible. Mm -hmm. And I, I know women love to other me and act as if this was all handed to me and, um, whatever, (laughs) that's fine. It doesn't affect my life at all, but I am really interested in having these conversations around, um, what is possible because, yeah, nothing was handed to me. And I'm really proud of the work that I've done. And I know that my life is an expression of the work that I've done. And what a beautiful thing to be able to say. Seriously. Wow. Thank you for sharing all of that. Everything you've done is just so, yeah. I mean, inspiring is not really, doesn't even really sum it up, but it is truly the embodiment of like dreaming big. I think I was telling Keely, I was like, Emily has a gift of not like not letting women play small or like not letting women lie to themselves. Like really when, when you're in your presence, it's like, you're like, okay, who, like what's, what's going on with me? Who am I? And where am I still like hiding, playing small, lying, and not willing to have what I say that I'm, that I want. Um, so yeah, you, you just have really embedded that into everything that you do. Um, and on that note, do you want to talk about what you do, your podcast festival coming up, um, and where a little bit more about how women can access some of your magical powers? You can access my magical powers at freebirthsociety.com. We have a really cool membership um, on a proprietary network, about 600 women uh, from all around the world. And yeah, you can join that if you want to be around women like us. Um, The festival is matriarchrisingfestival.com. Both these women will be there. And yeah, what I mean, it's just, it's the best thing ever. Yes. I don't even know what to say about it. I know. <laughs> the best thing ever. It is all my dreams coming true. Um, yeah, that is this summer over solstice. And then I have a podcast that is mostly highlighting birth stories outside the system so that we don't ever lose those. And I referenced the midwifery school that is, uh, that won't be offered again until enrollment opens at the end of the year, but that's the radicalbirthkeeperschool.com. 
you can learn all about that. I don't know. There's a lot going on. You can just look at the website and yeah, there's a lot going on. And I offer coaching, you know, around these tools. And also let me reference the book. If you want to just get that, it's a $15 investment, I think. And the book is called uh, the 15 commitments of conscious leadership and their website is conscious.is. And if you are interested in these tools that I've referenced, I would start there. Um, yeah, because it's totally changed my life and learned learning how to spend time out of victim consciousness has been the gift, you know, that has has everything has has created itself from. So yeah. Oh, thank you. Wow. Yes, thank you. Yeah, thanks for having me.